Well, today we are beginning a new series on the letter to the Colossians. And if you don't know what that is, and you're new to faith, so the Bible's got 66 books in it, and in the second half of the Bible, from the book of Matthew onwards, we have what is commonly referred to as the New Testament. And um, one of the people that wrote large sections of the New Testament, at least uh, by common historical understanding, is the Apostle Paul, who was a, uh, he was originally called Saul, and he had a radical encounter with Jesus, literally got knocked off his donkey. Uh, God transforms his life, and he ends up being an apostle, which means a sent one, going to uh, proclaim the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, and he started establishing communities of faith all over uh, the biblical world as we understand it. And so uh, he wrote lots of these letters. But today, we're going to begin looking at the letter to the Colossians. And this is a church that Paul wrote to, but he didn't start. Uh, And so before we get into that, because I'm going to read a fair bit of Scripture for you this morning, and then just make some thoughts and some comments on that, and hopefully we can reflect on what it is God's saying to us today. But my invitation to you straight up front, as we begin this uh, new series is for every single person in here to listen in two different ways. you got two ears. Now, I don't know if this is actually possible to do this, but in one ear, I want you to be listening for what the Spirit of God is saying to you. What's the prompt, the thought, that idea that pops in your head that you think, oh, this could be God getting my attention? And if you want to know if it's God or not, you'll simply just check, well, one, does this look like Jesus? Does this bear the fruit of the Spirit? Does this express itself in love? and goodness, and faithfulness, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, all the things that looks like God and His Spirit? Does it look like what Scripture's teaching us? Does it look like wisdom? And is it going to require faith, meaning trusting God, for me to actually take action on this thing? So that's what I want you to do with one ear during this series and today. With the other ear, if this is possible... I want you to try and listen through the lens of what's God saying to us as a community? Because when these letters were written, they weren't just written to individuals, generally speaking. Very often they were written to church communities and that church would hear this letter read out loud and they would have to discern and listen together, what does this mean for us together? Because one of the unique things that makes our faith radical and unique is that it's a communal faith. It's not just me and Jesus. And occasionally there are songs that we sing that make it sound like it's just me and you, Jesus, except that it's not. There's a personal response with you and Jesus But it's actually us and Jesus, me and us, because if our faith does not work itself out amongst the us, 
It's not the faith that Jesus invites us into because it's all about togetherness and reconciliation and unity and community and being the people of God, not just a person of God. And so that's what I'm hoping that you'll be able to do as we go into this series. Now, the first question that I want to ask you this morning is this. We call this series Alternative Life, and I want to ask you, do you see yourself as an alternative person or a mainstream person? Would you turn to the person next to you? And unfortunately, these are your only options. So if you're the person that says, neither, and you've got another way to describe that, unfortunately, you can't do it for this particular question. All I want you to do is go, I see myself as an alternative person, or I see myself as a mainstream person. Go. All right. Now, if you struggle with that, it's probably because inside you're alternative. If you went, oh, I don't want to answer that, or here's how I'd like to say it, or I don't really see myself. Trust me. On the inside, you're alternative. On the outside, you are whatever you are. So on Saturday morning, uh, some of you I introduced to uh, last week's congregation. Um, my nephew, Lucas, who is 15 years of age, and he was coming up here to do work experience. And uh, he had a great week, and he led youth on Friday night. And lots of the young people kept saying to me, is he really 15? Because he's really tall, and he did an amazing job. And it was fantastic. And then on Saturday morning, we got to the airport, and... We'd walked in, and we're standing in the queue, and it's all looking pretty normal. And then we spot this lady, who I'm going to guess was in her early 70s, and she had almost like these braids all the way through her long, flowing hair of all different colors. She had this amazing almost like Technicolored style jacket on. She had this like, don't ask me how I know this, but she had this like very recent latest brand jeans on. I'm going, wow. And she had these sneakers on that were Converse that I've never seen before. And I feel like I know a lot of Converse shoes and they had all different colors and totally different style. And they were like, almost like platform style. And uh, I know there's a few platform wearers of these shoes that come to good life. And we're standing there, and I'm looking, and I notice all the people in the line at the queue down to the front where you check in looking at this lady. And it was almost like I could hear everybody going, look at this lady. And I said to my nephew, I go, hey, look at this. And he goes... Oh. And before I let him say anything else, I said, that's what I love about this world. Now, why did I say that? Because I was brought up, you probably weren't, but I was brought up in a culture where fitting in and playing along with how things are meant to be is the way that you survive in life. It's the way you get credit. It's the way you don't cause too much fuss. And if you stand out or you look different or you're um, 
not seemingly looking or behaving like everybody else has nothing to do with whether it's loving or not. It's just different. You get put in the camp that we have traditionally called the alternative person. And we have like alternative towns and alternative cities. And I come from Sydney. And in Sydney, there's a, there's a town called Newtown. Does anyone know Newtown? It's one of the most amazing towns in Sydney. And there's these t-shirts that started going around that was like, keep Newtown weird. It was a campaign because they're like, let's not go back and try and be like everybody else. Let's be who we are, right? And I thought, what a really cool campaign. Where does everyone want to visit or lots of people want to visit when they come to Sydney? I heard two girls at the front of a cafe the other day that were, you know, um, just come up from the surf from Alex, and they're chatting away, and I overheard them, which because my ears pricked up because I went, I'm from Sydney, and they started saying, oh, you got to go to Newtown in Sydney. It's so cool, and, and it was so funny hearing them describe it from people that hadn't been there, had just been down in Sydney for a week, and they're obviously traveling around, and I was listening to it, and I, was, I got, got this little smirk, and a part of me says, oh, yeah, that's the city I come from. And I know people that live there, and I know people that love that community, but there's really different views about it. There's like, oh, those weirdos in Newtown, because they're all not like the rest of us. And then there's, oh, these people that make this city like spark come alive, so it just doesn't look plain like everybody else. And so there's this whole dynamic at play in culture around what does it mean to fit in? What does it mean to be ourselves? Now, here's the thing. The pitch this morning isn't for any of you to start going, all right, I'm just going to start being different. I'm going to just go and buy clothing that I would never want to buy. That's not the point. The point is this letter that Paul writes to the church in Colossae is an invitation to the alternative life that God is inviting us into that's heavily contrasted to the empire of its day. And those people who were the early followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, they stood out when they really lived this way that Jesus invited them to. And so this is what the invitation is at the beginning. And we're going to have a look at this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So it's coming from both of them. Most likely, Lots of scholars suggest that Timothy probably wrote this for Paul. Some people question whether it really was Paul who wrote it. Doesn't really matter all that much at the end of the day. The point is, there's a letter that's come forth to encourage and build up this church. And it says to God's holy people in Colossae, holy meaning set apart. That's important not to miss right at the beginning of this letter. This is not holy, oh, the ones who are like better than everybody else. This is a set-apart people. It's truly alternative. It's different too whilst being amongst. To God's holy people in Colossae. Now, where is Colossae? Just for you, just so you want get a picture in your head. If you have a look at this map here for a moment, you'll see here the city of Colossae is up here a little bit to the right of Ephesus, where there was another letter that was written to the church, uh, the Ephesians. And um, most likely, Paul, we don't exactly know whether he was under house arrest or he was up in Rome, but he was writing at a time when he was in prison 
And he'd been in prison multiple times for declaring Jesus is Lord, which is an outright challenge to the statement of the day in the empire that Caesar is Lord, the Son of God. And now there's these followers of the way of Jesus going around saying, well, actually, Jesus is Lord. And we're following his way, his rule, and his reign. So Paul was getting himself in a lot of trouble by going around and declaring this message. And so he writes to this church, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, in this place of Colossae. Now, most likely, we understand that the church in the city of Colossae was started by a guy called Epaphras. And what was happening was Epaphras starts his church, gets it going, and then he goes off and he visits Paul in prison. And he's updating Paul about how this church that he got going is happening. And so the beginning part of this, we see Paul's delighted. He's, in, he's encouraging them. But Epaphras is also letting Paul know about the challenges that this new community of faith is having as a, as a community that's living in a city that's run by the Roman Empire. That, that has got all these different deities and all these different structures and systems at play and all these mixed religions going on. And so this church is also struggling with what it means to live the way of Jesus in a culture that's really different values to what they're being invited to live. So he says to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmet have a really great phrase that they use to unpack that phrase that we could just skim straight past and just see as a basic greeting. But when Paul writes this greeting, this greeting is loaded with so much meaning behind it. And they express it this way. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and some translations add, and Christ Jesus our Lord. They say, may you experience the all-encompassing shalom and wholeness that is received as a wonderful gift from God our Father. What are they getting at when they express it that way? They're tapping into these two words, peace, which doesn't just mean the absence of conflict, but it's this word that would have been said in the Greek, but has Hebrew origins to be shalom, which is why Jesus and typical Jews would greet one another with the greeting of shalom, and Jesus very often used this as a, as, a, as a way of speaking about what his kingdom looks like when his values and when his way is lived out. This shalom, this peace, is what happens and what's experienced when things are the way they are meant to be. It's all-encompassing. All and they use the word, Paul uses the word here, grace, which literally means gift, you may have heard the expression unmerited favor. In other words, it's a gift that we receive from God that we don't deserve. We didn't work for it. We didn't do anything for it. It's just the heartbeat of God our Father is to give a gift. And this is the gift of grace that God gives us. This peace, 
and this grace. And Paul wants us to know that this comes from God. Verse 3, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, this week, we've been praying for churches throughout Queensland in the One Prayer uh, Week, and uh, Baptist churches across Queensland have been praying. And I've been reflecting on this as I pray. Can I pray, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then the following verses, is this what someone would be able to pray about us here at Good Life? When we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. He's the one who started the church who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, I want to pause for a moment and say the beginning part of this is an exhortation to a church that's bearing fruit. It's looking like Jesus and his kingdom. And some of the signs of that is these things. The fruit of a healthy church is love, is faith, and is hope. All of the things that Paul mentions in this section of the letter. He's seeing right at the beginning of that last verse, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith and of the love that you have for all God's people. This is so important because this is the sign of a healthy church. So the question for us is, are we that kind of community? Now, I would say yes, and hopefully continuing to be more and more of that. And here's part of the challenge. Everyone in here is at different levels of spiritual maturity. Some people in here, if you didn't know their name, you could think, are they Jesus? They are so loving. They're so gracious. They're kind. They're just like, man, this is another, like, this person is just, I want to be like this person. There are those people here. Then there are people that are like, this is a pretty good person, and I'm glad they come to good life. And then there are people that, I'm glad they come to good life, because everyone's welcome. And then there are people like, do they have to go to good life, or there's 75 other churches on the Sunshine Coast? Is there another church community that could be like good for them to go and hang with? Now, I say this and I joke about it, except that it's real, um, because everyone's at different levels of spiritual maturity, which is why we have conflict, which is why we have tension, which is why we have personality clashes, which is why people get hurt and offended. I remember hearing a preacher once say, you only have to breathe in church to get hurt or offended. Isn't that true? Why? Because everyone's at different levels of spiritual maturity. And so we make mistakes. We don't always act out in the way that is perfectly aligned to the life that Jesus is inviting us towards. So we're on a journey of becoming. And the challenge for us is, are we becoming a church that increasingly 
displays love for one another, faith in God, and hope in the resurrection life that God has invited us into now and for the age to come. And by the way, when the verse says about this hope that's stored up in heaven, it's not the idea stored up in heaven so that we can leave this earth to get up there and finally get it up there. It's a hope that's stored in the presence of God that we participate in now and in the age to come, in the resurrection life. Or as Tom Wright classically says, our hope is not in life after death, but life after life after death. Because the whole grand story of Scripture is the reconciliation and the restoration of all things. It's the coming together of heaven and earth. You read this in the, the final chapters of the book of Revelation. It's God bringing His kingdom to be, to be fully established. God ruling and reigning here with us in this creation that He is restoring and renewing. And so we get to participate in this. So the stakes are high. The next verse says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, the church in Colossae, we have not stopped praying for you. That's challenging. I've stopped praying for lots of people. I've stopped praying for other churches. But Paul and Timothy and probably Epaphras are like, we've not stopped praying for you. That's a challenge. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and the understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Wow. The challenge in how we respond to this is the question, am I living a life that is worthy of the Lord? It's a big challenge. Does my life increasingly look like it's moving towards honoring, as we just sang Hannah's song a few moments ago, may my life be worship to you. In other words, our lives are to be a living sacrifice where we're saying, God, I want my life to honor you and who you are and your majesty. So they say, we hope that you have the Spirit's understanding, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. So when you go to work tomorrow or today, whatever it is that you're doing in home, in work, in life, you, we want to live in such a way that honors the one that we've surrendered to as Lord of our lives. This is the alternative life. And it goes on, it says, growing in the knowledge of God, so discovering the wonder and the majesty and the beauty of who this creator of the universe is, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Whew, who needs endurance and who needs patience here? Yeah. But for this church in Colossae, the reason why they needed patience and endurance is because they're living in a culture that has set itself up opposed to the kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's a challenge. If you live your life alternatively to that of empire, at some point it's going to rub up and there's going to be tension because really our lives end up being uh, ones that subvert the systems and the culture of the empire that we find ourselves in. And you might be saying, well, we don't live in the Roman Empire. You know, we don't have empires like this anymore. Oh, we do, but they're just more subtle. 
These empires look like consumerism and materialism and globalization that means that very often things move at a pace where it's the dollar or it's the power that determines what progresses rather than every single person flourishing. And so we're invited to participate and play our part in this. Verse 12, and giving joy and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Verse 13, for he has rescued us, this is good news, from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. See what's happening here? We're rescued from a life under empire. We're brought into the kingdom of the Son, Jesus Christ. Now he's our Lord. Now he's our King and the ruler in whom we have redemption. In other words, everything that's broken and messed up in our life, God redeems, He restores, He offers forgiveness of sins. He sets us free. Our behavior, our life, our shortcomings are not held against us. So when something's going wrong in your life, you don't have to think like the old song in the 90s, well, is, this, is it raining on me because I lied when I was 17? The, you know, this system that tells us this karma-orientated idea that, oh, this isn't just about reaping what you've sown, which is a, a very real principle of life. This is about understanding that the God that we serve who's revealed to us in Jesus Christ is the God who does not hold our sins and our behavior against us. He's the God of grace and mercy who pours out his rain on the just and the unjust. That's good news for me. I don't know about you, but that's very good news. Verse 15, this is the exciting part. I mean, it's all exciting, but this is like where we're getting to today. The Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, and and notice how many times it says all things. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, meaning the unseen realm. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Do you know this was actually a hymn, this passage of Scripture? Some refer to it as a poem, but it's actually written as an early hymn. We're not sure whether Paul wrote it or he borrowed it from someone. This passage here is profound because what it's pointing to is this. If you want to know what God is like, God is like Jesus. He is the visible image of the invisible God. The God that we wonder, what's God like? Where is God? If you want to know what he's like, he looks like Jesus. Which is why when you see religious extremists, religious nutcases, who want to tell everyone that they're all burning in hell and that God hates them and he's against them, and you're like, they're saying God. Which God are they talking about? Because if you look at Jesus and you look at his life and his teaching and what his kingdom looks like, it ain't that God. If you want to know what God looks like, He looks like Jesus. He looks like Christ. He doesn't look like hatred. He looks like all that is good and pure and wonderful. 
It goes on and says that this Jesus, he's the head of the body, which is the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that everything he might have, that, that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile, look at, look at these words, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What we draw from this hymn is this, Christ is the creator. Paul wants us to know that he's from the beginning. There's these tones and this, this like echo of the story of Genesis here, of in the beginning, who is in the beginning. John says it this way, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So that's a metaphor that John uses. Paul's saying here that Christ, the son, the visible image of God, is in the beginning of creation, and he's also the recreator. Why? Because through Jesus, he's reconciling all things. Now, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? Tom Wright says, if it's wisdom that you want, Jesus is where you have to look. He goes on and says, because humanity plays the key role in the ordering of God's world, Human reconciliation will lead to the restoration of creation. Just as human sin led to creation's fall, all evil is to be destroyed through the cosmic outworking of the crucifixion. All creation is to be transformed in the cosmic results of the resurrection. And we get to be part of that. Now you say, whew, there's a lot in this passage. That's why we're going to spend a month reading through, reflecting. So you say, so all of that, what's that got to do with what's happening in my life right at the moment? What's that got to do with my work and my job and us trying to get a house or us trying to raise our kids? What's this got to do with my marriage? What's this got to do with me finding a partner? What's this got to do with me and the sickness that I'm facing at the moment? It's this. Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. He actually sang it. you got to serve somebody. Everyone's serving someone. The question is, who are we serving? Are we serving Christ as supreme, as Lord? And if we are, then we live under His rule and His reign, which then dictates every single thing we do, how we do what we do. So that when I see the lady at the airport... I change my thinking from, oh, who's this lady? Why is she trying to be different? Why is she trying to not fit into, this is what I love about humanity. People can express their lives. They can bring all the colors and all the life. And instead of looking down on her, I can look for the beauty and the humanity in her. That is living under the supremacy of Christ. This is understanding the restoration of all things, that God's restoring and redeeming me, and that you and I are part of what God is doing. This is not just God doing it all and us sitting back. If Christ is in you, as this letter says, then this means that every single thing that you do, you're part of in bringing about the restoration and the reconciliation of all things. We all have our part to play. And so this means that the 30 families that was served over the last fortnight through LifeHouse is part 
of recognizing the supremacy of Christ as opposed to the empires of this world. We give and we serve and we, and we say it's utterly unacceptable that in this day and age, people don't have the basics to live. Why do we say that? Because that's how it works in Jesus' kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And if we're part of it, we surrender to it and we say, all right, what's my part to play in this? What it looks like is yesterday at the funeral here for Neil Markham, who was a part of Good Life, sitting amongst hundreds of people and hearing a son and a daughter talk about a father who surrendered his life to the lordship of Christ as opposed to the alternative lords of this world. And they were able to say, my dad was patient. My dad was loving. My dad wanted to be with me. My dad taught me this and my dad taught me that. And I want to live my life in a way that honors my dad. What kind of a person becomes like that? Someone who lives an alternative life under the lordship of Jesus. Faith, hope, and love was the fruit of this church in Colossae. I had a very challenging, Trace and I had a very challenging week this week. We've got some challenges happening with our boy that are very complex. And I'm telling you this not for sympathy, but just to tell you, because I shared with the team beforehand this morning, I had people come up to me sometimes and say comments like, my life's not worked out like yours is. And before I get a chance to catch them, before they walk up, I'm like, ah, stop. You don't understand. This is a dynamic thing that we are in. You don't arrive. This is a daily surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. And if there's any good fruit of my life of love, of faith, of hope, it's because of the grace and the peace of God from God poured into my life. And that God really does restore and redeem and grow us. And then equally, in any moment where I step outside away from the Lordship of Jesus, man, I make silly decisions. I don't behave the right way. I don't exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. I get angry. I get frustrated. I lack patience. I judge people in airports. But the grace of God keeps compelling me to come back and be restored. And so I came into this morning service, man, oh, man, I'm emotionally tired and drained. And then we sang these songs we did, and we prayed together as a team, and we worshiped together as a community, and I, re I realized that this chapter that we've just started reading in Colossians today is an example of the beauty of God's church at work, because my spirit was lifted up. I feel encouraged and supported. I don't feel alone, because I've invested my life and our families into community, into a place where we say, today is tough. The challenges around us are, are tough, but we can do this. We can endure together because of the grace and the peace of God in our lives. And so I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. 
And I want you to bring whatever your week is before God and surrender it afresh before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Whatever area of your life right at the moment you say, man, this is not quite surrendered. By the grace and the mercy of God, walk into God's grace and say, here, I'm offering this before this God of mercy. He is supreme over all things. And I refuse to live under the empires of this world any longer. I'm going to live this alternative life where God gives us the mercy and the grace and the compassion today to endure. Amen. So if you're struggling, you're in good company. If you feel tired today, you're in good company. If you feel like you've blown it, you're in good company. If you feel like, oh, I don't know how to get through this week. You are in good company because God is here by His grace and by His mercy and we can't do this together. So let's remember it's us and the Lord and may His grace and mercy be on you now. Let's lift our voices and let's express our love to this Savior.